I invite you to open your Bibles now to the book of the prophet Obadiah. We will begin today what is usually the shortest possible sermon series. There are only two. You will notice Obadiah is a very short book. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, which means we will read the whole thing today, but we'll focus tonight on verses 1 through 14, and then next, in two weeks, we will conclude. So the book of the prophet Obadiah, we'll read all 21 verses, but we'll focus our study tonight on 1 through 14. So receive this with faith. This is the word of God for us. Thus says the Lord, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how, will you, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies, all your allies have driven you to your border, border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declare the Lord, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. 
the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shepala shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephtha, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. No sin against Olga of Kiev will go unpunished. For those unfamiliar with 10th century Slavic history, Olga was the queen of Kievan Rus, a state in Eastern Europe that gave birth to, as you can get, gather from its name, modern-day Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. It all began with the assassination of her husband, Igor, at the hand of the neighboring nation of the Dravlians. The Dravlians thought it would be a blow to their enemy since their prince, Sviatoslav, was only three years old. What they got was a wrathful vengeance unmatched in history. First, right after Igor's death, the Dravlians tried to impose their dominance on Kivian Rus by sending a delegation of their finest men to arrange a political wedding with Olga. She set a trap for them and buried them alive in a trench. It is written that Olga bent down to watch them as they were buried and, quote, inquired whether they found the honor to their taste. Then she sent a word to the Dravlian saying she accepted the offer and asked them to send their leadership and nobility to prepare for the wedding. And when they did, she, buried, she burned them alive in a bathhouse. Finally, after a series of other atrocities, Olga and her army seized Ikoristan, the Dravlian capital city. After they resisted the siege for more than a year, Olga seemed to relent. She asked for a tribute in, as a sign of peace, three pigeons and three sparrows from each household inside the city. So they sent the birds. Olga then instructed her army to attach a piece of sulfur bound with small pieces of cloth to each of the birds. And then at nightfall, Olga told her soldiers to set the pieces aflame and release the birds. The birds came back to their nests. The entire city burned to the ground. Truth be told, for one reason or another, whether for brief moments or for years, we have all wanted to be Olga. We have all been wronged. We have all faced deep, dark, true evil in this world and wished we could exact revenge or at least have the power to do it. Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, Uvalde, Texas, 
words that make our blood boil and send a chill down our spines. We hear the news of another school shooting, and deep down we wish we could punish evildoers and then go unpunished ourselves. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Sings the psalmist, and we sing with him. The prophecy of the prophet Obadiah speaks to that longing. It tells the story of horrible atrocities committed in the past and how God deals with them. It it speaks of God's people's desire for justice in the backdrop of the cosmic enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's line. Above all, this book speaks of the mercy of God in gathering the people for him and protecting them from a wrathful yet just judgment under the cross of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, as I said earlier, we begin to see this story. We'll take two sermons to see it all. But tonight we'll investigate the first 14 verses of Obadiah and we will see today that God will not let evil go unpunished. In some, today we will see that God will not let evil go unpunished. We'll see that in two points. And the first is, God punishes his enemies because of their pride. God punishes his enemies because of their pride. As you see from the top, Obadiah directs most of his prophecies to the nation of Edom, as we see in verse 2. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. If you are as familiar with ancient Near near Middle East history, geopolitics, as much as you are with 10th century Slavic wars, let us first understand who this Edom is that we are talking about. The Edomites are a people that find their origins in Esau, Jacob's twin brother, the son of Isaac and Rebekah. If you want to hear more about them, you can read the book of Genesis, starting on chapter 25, or you can come to our evening services and follow Dr. Alan Curry's sermon series on those chapters that he just started last week. Jacob and Esau, as we heard a little bit last week, were rivals before they were even born, fighting in their mother's womb. And that rivalry persisted throughout their lives. While the people of Jacob, later renamed Israel, came to possess the land of Canaan, God gave Mount Seir Seir, to Esau. There, the Edomites grew into the nation that now Obadiah is talking to and talking about. At the point of Obadiah's vision, Edom was guilty of many sins before the Lord. They were proud and they were arrogant, as we see in verses 2 to 4 thinking that their higher fortifications on top of the rocky hill of the country seer would make them invincible. Their hearts are as hardened as the stones on which they set their homes. Like the old Babylonians who set to to build a great tower to reach heaven and make their name great, they proclaim, who would bring me down to the ground? As one commentator puts it, with these arrogant words and proud presumptions, this little backwater people echo the boasts of Babylon 
as recorded by the prophet Isaiah, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Obadiah makes this comment in verse 4 of them having a nest among the stars. Archaeologists say that in the dark of night, if you looked up from the foot of Mount Seir, the lamps on their houses would look like the hosts of heaven, how high they were, like stars against the backdrop of a dark sky. Maybe Obadiah, when giving his prophecy, was looking up when he said, from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse 7 gives us another reason why they were so proud. The Edomite territory was located south of Israel, in the middle of many trade routes connecting Egypt to the rest of the Middle East. Because of their military advantage of being such a fortified nation on top of the rock, many other nations pled allegiance to the Edomites in exchange for safe passage. Their geographic pride became then geopolitical pride. Then in verses 8 and 9, we read of the wise men of Edom. A common byproduct of being a trading center in this era was to become a cultural hub of sorts. Was to receive, receive the lore and the knowledge of all the nations that passed by them. So on top of the rock, they gather wealth and they gather knowledge. But as you might have noticed, even though I'm singing the praises of the great Edom, in this first section from verses 1 through 9, God promises to destroy them. He will bring them down. They will be pillaged, driven out of their land, and betrayed by their allies. In verse 5, Obadiah ironically hints that it would be better for them if they were robbed by thieves or assaulted by grape, grape gatherers. Because thieves and harvesters can only steal what they can carry. The terrifying reality for Edom, and to us, as we'll see in a, in a minute, is that God is coming for them, not a thief in the night. And their fate is worse than being robbed or harvested. Wait a second you should be thinking at this point. Edom was a prosperous nation. They had wisdom. They had power. Is that necessarily wrong? I mean, look around. We are a very wealthy nation. We have a lot of knowledge. We have a lot of power. Should we be scared? I think this is what the text wants us to ask us, ask ourselves this night. Should we be scared? In verse 3, God says he would humble the Edomites because of their pride. The Edomites looked at these, these things they had, and they relied on them for their security. So I must ask, do you rely on your stuff for your security? More often than not, we take credit for the good things we have, forgetting who gave them to us, forgetting that every good gift comes from above, and we proceed to build our castles of money, 
political power, and we think no one will ever take us down. We believe that the church will be invincible if we have a Christian in the White House. We live as if the promises of prevailing against the gates of hell depended on having the majority in the Senate. We toil and we labor in the prime of our years simply because we want to have the security of a fat retirement pension. We make ourselves gods of our tiny little kingdoms, whether our homes or our churches, where we cling to titles and ministries as if our lives depended on them. Do you take pride in your experience or knowledge and think no one should talk down to you? Has the orthodox part of our name kept our denomination from being involved in scandal of spiritual and physical abuse? How much of our pride in our theological heritage made us blind to our own mistakes to the point that we think we cannot fail? So if any accusations, accusations of wrongdoing do, do come, they have to be lies because we are always right. Right? Out of pride, we refuse to admit we are wrong. And we ignore the cries of those oppressed inside the walls of our own traditions. The first thing we, need, we needed to see from this text is that God punishes his enemies because of their pride. So I will ask you one last time. In the words of Obadiah 3, has a pride of your heart deceived you? And since this text talks about the punishment of God's prideful enemies, more importantly, I have to ask you, are you then an enemy of the Lord? This will lead us to our second point. Apart from Christ, we are all God's enemies. Apart from Christ, we are all God's enemies. God promises through Obadiah to destroy Edom for more than just being proud, if that was not enough. Pride is their condition, and their pride led to the actions. Obadiah, Obadiah describes what they did in verses 10 to 14. Here, we read of the atrocities they committed against the nation of Israel. When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon ravaged and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, the Edomites joined the wrong side of the party. They stood from a safe distance at first, gloating and laughing at the disgrace of their brother neighbor. Then they got their hands dirty pillaging the ruined city. And to top it all, killing the few Israelites that managed to escape or just handing them over to the Babylonians. Hey, Mr. King of Babylon, we caught these two escaping. Do you want us to hand them over or can we do it ourselves? They probably said with a smile. Can you imagine a situation like that? How much must you hate 
a people to see them suffering and do what you can, either by commission or omission, to make it worse. Can you imagine right now standing aloof while children cry from underneath tons of concrete from falling buildings in the streets of Turkey and Syria? Maybe you take the opportunity to, since no one's looking in, go ahead and do a little pillaging for yourself. Can you imagine rejoicing and boasting over families torn apart when Ukrainian men over 18 were called to defend the borders of their country against a way more powerful army? Laughing at a distance as the Russians tank, Russian tanks rolled into their territory. Can you imagine that? But while this all sounds horrible to imagine, at the same time, it seems very distant from us, right? You might recognize that you are guilty of pride more times than you would admit out loud. But still, you never pillaged the capital of a neighboring country. What have you to do with Babylon, Edom, Jerusalem? Let's take a step back from the text. The first thing you must understand today is that this particular conflict between Jacob and Esau is just one expression of a cosmic conflict that spawns all created reality, including, yes, you and me. It all begins, as all things do, in the Garden of Eden, when the serpent tempted our father and mother. They sinned, and as a result of that mass, God promised he would send an offspring from the woman to crush the head of the evil serpent. In a way, the story of the entire world is a story of anticipation of this great day of evil being punished. The story of the Old Testament, as you probably are familiar, is a violent story sometimes of this conflict of offsprings. Cain and Abel. Israelites and Egyptians, David and Goliath representing Israelites and Philistines, just to name some of the more famous. Moreover, in a way that might not seem obvious at first, it bleeds over to the New Testament, this conflict. The people of Edom, after suffering their share of destruction and exile through history, eventually become what is known as the Edomians, from where came the lineage of the Herods, the kings who ruled over Judah in the, in the times of the Gospels. So yes, that includes the great Herod, who ordered the genocide of babies when he heard the news that the king of the Jews was born. How much must you hate a nation to order killing babies? You see, the story of this world is the story of God's enemies throwing everything they got at the seed of the woman. Egyptians slaved the Hebrews. Babylonians exiled Judah. Herod tried to kill Jesus when he was born. And another Herod was there when they finally got to kill him. In verses 10 of 14, you will find Seven references to Israel's day of calamity 
distress, and ruin. As you might have heard, in the Bible, seven is the round number. It gives the idea of completeness. And then finally, when one Edomite finally has his hands on crucifying the prom prom promised Messiah to a cross, this world saw completeness of crime, the biggest crime one could ever imagine. Injustice at its peak, violence at full display, the only true, good, just, and kind person to ever walk this earth, perfect, perfectly free of pride, selfless to the point of death, killed by an Edomite. When you look at the all-loving Son of God dying in shame, being punished for sins and crimes he did not commit, it dawns on you what God does to answer the evils we see in this world. He goes under it. He takes it upon himself. Jesus Christ, our long-expected Savior, identifies with us so much that he goes through the most horrible anguish, death, and violence to carry the wrath of God in the stead of those who actually deserve it. And who deserve it, you might be asking yourself. What Obadiah is telling us today is that it is you and me. Because when you see, as we try to explain very shortly, very briefly, the entire history of history as the conflict between God's chosen against the surrounding Edomites, you realize that by birth, you are from Mount Seir, not from Mount Zion. In this way of seeing the world, you are an Edomite. Since we all carry the sin of Adam, we are all part of the serpent's offspring. We are born enemies of God. This is how we come to this earth. And I don't think it is a coincidence that in Hebrew, and it holds, and it holds up in the translation, Edom sounds a lot like Adam. This is the story of the entire humanity and their first representative. It was Adam's pride, after all, thinking he knew better than God that brought sin into this world. It was your pride that put Jesus, the second Adam, on the cross. In this grand scheme of things, we stood aloof, aloof washing our hands, while he was carried, while he carried his cross to Mount Calvary. We cast lot for his clothes while he hung naked. We gloated and boasted while crying, crucify him. We stood aloof at the cross, and our guilt pierced his hand and feet. Our pride in refusing to give glory to God and taking matters, matters into our own hands, whether by thinking we can build our own fortresses or by refusing to help those in need, is the reason of this unspeakable evil. You see, no sin against the living God will go unpunished. For you now to be punished for yours 
the true Son of God, the true Israel, died in shame and humiliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a text we heard this morning, puts it like this. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because he humbled himself so we would be exalted by God, by God the Father, you then, looking at him, can let go of your pride. You can humbly cling to him. And finding him, ironically, all those things you were trying to achieve for yourself. In him, you find a shelter and a refuge in time of need. In him are hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Our sins against the holy God were judged in Jesus' brutal death, completely satisfying God's justice. He died at the hand of the Edomites so you can be free from living like one. While the day when he finally comes to destroy the wise men of Edom and slaughter the mighty men of Esau does not arrive, this text calls us finally to repent from our pride, to cease trying to be our own saviors. Today, the Holy Spirit of God calls you to hold on to him who died to give you life. He who humbled himself to the point of death to exalt you in his resurrection and to bring you back with him to his holy mountain is calling you tonight. Repent and believe, he said. Repent and believe. Let us pray. Most merciful Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. It is your glowing righteousness that rescues us from our wickedness and greed, from our pride. In your perfection, you had every right to judge and humiliate sinners around you, yet you dearly loved the most sinful of humans and forgave them freely. Our guilt and treason were your undoing, yet, even now, you think of us with love and pity and un unserving devotion. Jesus, our Lord, we thank you for living and for dying for us. In your name we pray, and together we say, Amen.